Hello, everyone. Welcome to Personalization Outbreak Podcast number 12. Last week, we talked about the three Ps that are defining the narrative these days, pandemic, protest, and profit. This week, we'll focus on patient experience in healthcare that is being heavily transformed by the three Ps. Our guest today is Dr. Shadden Marzouk, president of Caremore and Aspire at Anthem. She has over two and a half decades of experience in healthcare with expertise in services, provider, device technology, and pharmaceutical spaces. You see, Shadden is an adventure seeker. She began her career as a neurosurgeon, later in Iraq as a major in the U.S. Army, and later transitioned out of surgical practice after receiving an MBA. Along with co-host Professor Scott Lacey, we will talk about how COVID-19 has become a catalyst for virtual care and why there was such resistance to telehealth prior to the pandemic. We will also discuss how individual empowerment will play a critical role in advancing quality of care delivery and how diverse talent will play a larger role in the reinvention of healthcare. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Shadden, it's so great to have this conversation with you, and thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, part of what we do on every show is we want our audience, whether it's on YouTube or whichever uh, podcast that they uh, channel that they listen to, to get to see and know our guests as individuals. So why is it that you find your most authentic self when you have time to contemplate Time to rest, time to be patient, time to enjoy what is happening in time that is unscheduled. I think it's because it's such a, a difference from my, my daily life. You know, typically my daily life is packed from morning through night and every 30 minutes something different. And I think humans were honestly not meant for these sorts of schedules. I think we're meant for, you know, doing something a little more than sitting for 14 hours a day. And so when I get a chance to to be up and around and really get to think about things and really contemplate and, and get to be in the moment. To me, that's, that's just being uh, true to my human self. Well, speaking of your human self, uh, you've done quite a bit in, <laughs> with your time on this earth. In fact, beyond your capacity as a business executive, you're also a neurosurgeon and a veteran. And thank you for your service, by the way. So please share with us your backstory. Yeah, you know, so my backstory, as you kind of mentioned at the, at the very beginning of the podcast, is that I've been attracted to challenges and adventure my whole life. And, you know, my parents emigrated from Egypt to the U.S., and so they took us around the world at very early ages. As a toddler, I had a passport. And I think I never lost that sense of adventure. And I really loved the idea of going to new places and doing new things. And that's, you know, the track I've really followed in my career. 
when I was a medical student and trying to decide what specialty I would pick, you know, neurosurgery was very attractive to me because it was a challenge. It was something that at the time, not very many women did. It was uh, at the time the hardest specialty to get into. And I liked neurosurgeons, which is, um, you know, something that's an interesting statement, but I liked neurosurgeons because it was a group of people that were very action-oriented and direct and were dealing with the biggest challenges um, in terms of, of healthcare clinically and a field that really has a lot of innovation and um, discovery yet to be done. So all of that kind of mixed into my professional choice to become a neurosurgeon. And then about mid-career, I decided to uh, change my career and move over to the business side of healthcare, which is another example of really um, just jumping into the deep end of the pool, maybe without knowing exactly how deep the water is, but um, for better or for worse, that's, that's me. And so um, I did that. I went to Duke University and got my MBA at the Pupa School of Business, and that really precipitated the change for me. And one of the most exciting things at that time was the fact that with the MBA, I felt like I could do anything. There were so many possibilities in terms of what a doctor with an MBA could do. And that, that sense of adventure, that sense of openness, that sense of you could do anything was really exciting for me. And that's been the way I really led my business career. Um, you know, I was at Goldman Sachs, I was at Cardinal Health, I was at AXA. And all of these are different chapters that really represented jumping into something new and, and tackling it. You know, Shad, let me, uh, I didn't plan to, to ask you this question, but as I hear you, it's, you can't, how can one not be in, inspired uh, by your backstory? And you had mentioned, you know, your roots coming from Egypt and, you know, now we're living this cultural demographic shift in the United States. What would you say to a young uh, immigrant here in the United States that may want to pursue a, a dream or a career in the healthcare industry. Um, as patients become more culturally diverse, we need more leaders like you that can uh, lead the way to better serve those communities. What would you say to, again, to a, to a young immigrant here in the U.S. That's, uh, that is considering healthcare or, or should be considering health as a career? Yeah, I think healthcare is a fantastic career. I think it's the career. I think it mixes so many things, so many skill sets, but moreover, it's a career where you have definite impact. You don't have to try to imagine A plus B plus C equals impact. You just have impact. And what I would yeah. tell people of diverse backgrounds is please, please come to healthcare. Um, again, the population in the U.S. is diverse and we need diverse perspectives. And having that kind of experience when you go into healthcare and treat patients and help people is important because, uh, again, when we treat patients, we're treating patients medically, of course but we're really treating the whole person and you're treating their socioeconomic status and other social determinants of health and their medical conditions and their behavioral condition. And, you know, it's even better if you can speak the native language of the patient. So again, all of this adds up to the need for a really diverse workforce. And so if I were speaking to someone, I would say healthcare is a great profession. You should definitely do it. It opens many doors and will tap on, on everything that you have inside of you to deliver. Well, for all those millennials and Gen Zs that will represent, or I should say are the leaders of the cultural demographic shift and represent uh, the most culturally and ethnically diverse uh, generations of, in history, uh, listen closely to this conversation with Shadden. Uh, I think it's going to bring you great inspiration. So Shadden, let's take a step back and could you please take a moment to share with our audience a little bit about who... Uh, care more and aspire 
uh, are. Who are these? In, what are these entities, and um, how are how do they play a critical role in in care delivery? Yeah. So when I really think about you know how can we change the healthcare system, you know I wish I could have changed it uh, one patient at a time as a, as a neurosurgeon, but in the end I think it takes a bigger platform and care delivery health services inside health insurance, I think is, is the platform for this. And so what Careborn and Aspire do is care delivery. And we treat uh, the most complex and high risk patients. When you think about where is healthcare delivered, you know, it's delivered in the hospital, in the nursing home, in the assisted living facility, in the home, virtually. And that's Careborn and Aspire. We're there in all of those channels of care, outpatient, inpatient, post-acute, virtual, in-person, in the home. And moreover, when you really think about the continuum of care and being able to help people from preventing them from going to the hospital, when they're in the hospital, after the mm. hospital, all the way to palliative care, that's what we offer at Caremore and Aspire. So we're a care delivery team. We cover the continuum of care. We deal with the most complex, high-risk patients, and we really help people throughout their healthcare journeys. And the other point I'll mention is that this is not just about medical care, but as I mentioned earlier, this is really about caring for the whole person and helping people with their social determinants of health and their behavioral issues, as well as their medical issues, and really everything down to what are your dietary needs, what are your transportation mm. needs, and considering all of that in terms of really delivering health care that is affordable and accessible and, of course, very high quality. So this kind of leads me to our theme for today's discussion. Uh, this notion of uh, from mission to contribution that in the age of personalization, we must invigorate a shared mission by elevating individual contribution. In other words, the company mission can't be more valued than one's own contribution to it. Now, what is most meaningful to people is to know they have a chance to contribute their unique skills, their strengths, no matter the mission. So as you well know, uh, Shadden, uh, healthcare has historically been a mission-driven um, industry fueled with empathy and compassion. I think uh, our friends in corporate America and higher education can learn a lot from uh, the healthcare industry, especially during uh, these times of crises. But in the age of personalization, how can patients, how can healthcare associates, how can communities play a role in helping co-design the mission and future legacies of healthcare? I mean, I know it's a big question, but shouldn't they now be playing a more integral role in helping the mission of healthcare evolve? Absolutely. And I, I think what these particular times, you know, we're in a global pandemic, we're in an economic recession, COVID, unfortunately, the first wave hasn't finished or is respiking, depending on which definition you look at. But, you know, for sure, we're in the throes of it still in the US. And what I would say is ultimately, what this shows is the power of the individual. So person by person, we can change healthcare, we can change our destinies. For example, um, with COVID-19, healthcare uh, in a lot of areas really switched much more to virtual care. And this was just a um, catalyst for virtual care. And I'm a big fan of virtual care. I think there's a lot we can do uh, in terms of reaching people through telemedicine, through remote monitoring, through digital tools. But before COVID-19, you know, there was a certain level in terms of virtual care, and then that was accelerated. And that showed us that patients can participate, providers can participate, um, care delivery organizations can participate in virtual care in ways that were unimagined previously. And the other thing that I'll mention 
is what all of this has also shown is the power of individual responsibility. If you hmm. agree to wear a mask and agree to social distance, you can change the course of COVID-19 in your community, in your area. And this comes down to individual empowerment. Shad, I want to go so many places without response. Let, let me start. Let me start by, uh, by, by this one. Why was there such resistance to telehealth prior to COVID nineteen? Was it just a reimbursement issue? I mean, this has changed care delivery overnight. Why didn't we see the opportunity before circumstances forced their hand? I think there's a lot of reasons, and you've touched on some of them. They can be regulatory, they can be technical, but I think what underlies all of this is human nature. It's doing something. We are all used to when we need the doctor, we physically go to the doctor. We find some way to take time off work, we make an appointment or we go to an urgent care or whatever. It's just the journey that we've always taken in healthcare. And so the idea of just accessing the doctor or the nurse or a behavioral health specialist or any other provider just through your phone, it's different. And what I found is that when you expose people to virtual care and they do it, just do it. If you try it, you'll discover that it's effective, high quality, your needs can be met. So it's really uh, just a, uh, it's many, many matters, but one part of it is the human nature of just changing. So this takes me back, and I'm sure this is not going to surprise you. I mean, can standardization in healthcare scale at its current form. I mean, I think what we're learning from virtual care is that it can't. And I can tell you personally, I've had probably, I don't know, five um, telehealth experiences. They've been fabulous. Uh, not, but I think maybe for me, it's been a good experience because I've known my PCP for over 20 years. But my point is that in standardization, the way healthcare uh, protocols and were designed over a hundred years ago, can they scale at their current form? I mean, you've said it a few times. We've reached the age of the individual, individual empowerment, uh, individuals that really can help reshape care delivery. What are your thoughts on that, Shed? Yeah, I mean, I think there's really two points in there. I mean, first of all, standardization doesn't mean that everything is standardized. It means that certain processes and protocols and best practices are propagated. And when we think about virtual care, one of the things we can learn from our experience in COVID-19 is that we have to make technology easy for patients. It's not about mm. downloading and then, you know, even the way we all entered Zoom today. It's about, can you just click and then go? And can this be easy for all age groups? And we almost have to think about providers. Again, from a technological perspective, is this another program, another app, or is this something easy that you can just touch and go? So I think from a technology perspective, there's standardization that can occur that enables the scaling of virtual health. But at the same time, as we mentioned earlier, this is not about forgetting you know, personalization and the individual. Everyone that we care for is an individual person with individual needs, and that doesn't change. But the processes that make it efficient, those can be standardized. You know, so well put, and you've clearly articulated that we have to find balance between these two forces of standardization and personalization. And, you know, it's how do we reinvent or help certain standards from the past evolve that respect personalization. So on that note, where do you see virtual care in the next five years? I mean, where do you see it heading? Where's this all going? Yeah. 
I think there's a good chance that we're not going to go back to the way we were pre-COVID when it comes to virtual care, which I think is great. Um, again, there's always the need for in-person care and personal touches when it comes to healthcare. But at the same time, we've seen the power of virtual care. We've seen that we can help patients with prevention and help patients avoid unnecessary utilization and comfort people in serious times when it comes to healthcare. We even have a telepalliative care product where we do palliative care in a virtual manner. So again, think of the seriousness of those conversations and those patients and being able to do it effectively. So when I think about where is virtual care going, I think it's going in a way that makes it more ubiquitous, that makes it easier when you think about putting a hub in patients' homes so that remote monitoring devices can connect. It doesn't matter if you have good Wi-Fi or not, you're driving off the hub, it can be cellular. There's a lot of technology, and I don't mean to get into the details here, but I, I think virtual care, the genie's out of the box and it's not going back. By the way, our audience loves details, so don't hold back. I mean, the fact that you said that you don't have to have good internet connection to get connected, that alone made me want to go deeper into that. But So, Scott, where are you at this? Where, what are you picking up? Where, where's your head at, Scott? Um, a couple things. I think the, the, first, the first mini bit is I really appreciate the point, point that um, we just were hearing about, which is you were um, – pushing us away from thinking of standardization and personalization as a binary, right? You are pushing us more towards a continuum, right? And I think that I'm going to use that same kind of framing because, you know, one thing that's, that's truly remarkable about learning your, about your life story and your path and your journey is, is how you've done that with, with the silos. You know, very few of us in the world have actually had the opportunity to be in the C-suite. And very few of us have had the opportunity to be a neurosurgeon, <laughs> right? And very few of us have had the opportunity to be in business and to be such, such a game changer in all three of those. Um, I think one of the reasons why many of us don't end up being in one or two or three of those items at the same time is that, you know, we are in many ways talk about standardization. We see those and they come into our lives in very divided ways, right? They're silos. They're not meant to cross except for in weird situations, right? But what you do and what you did is you crossed those silos before people were talking about breaking down silos. And so I'm going to put a question to you, if you don't mind, from your unique perspective as the silo buster and these three areas that are totally disconnected. Most people are going to ask you, I think, so tell us, what is the difference? Uh, what does personalization look like in, say, healthcare versus over here in business, right? I'm curious, not about what is different or distinct about those, but you're the silo breaker. What, what do we need to hear from a silo breaker of these three amazing trajectories that you've been on? Where's the Venn diagram in terms of the commonality? What's, what's something that came true and rings true in each one of those, even though we're trained and we practice in our minds how to see them separately? I think the Venn diagram really overlaps on the phrase that uh, risk is good. And listen, I get it. There's certainly bad risk. There's uh, a lot of issues with taking risk. Um, and I'm not talking specifically about your stock portfolio, but I'm speaking much more, much more generally. And that is, you know, each time that I made these decisions in life, I, I took a risk. I took a risk changing my, uh, changing my life uh, mid-career and moving from being a provider to the business side of healthcare. Um, I took a risk as I moved um, into different roles inside healthcare. 
And I think a lot of times when you think about standardization, that leads to the thought process that you have to know everything before you decide something. And you have mm. to be set to be perfect before you make that decision. And for better or for worse, and sometimes it's been for worse, you know, I've eschewed that. I've essentially decided that, you know what, let's try it. Let's have an adventure. You have one life. Let's, uh, let's try to maximize what you can get out of it. That's brilliant, right? I mean, what, the way I just heard you is that, that essentially this, this risk, that the risk that you're willing to take and that you did take, right, that actually it, one way to look at it is being sort of uh, open to taking on risk, but I look at it as an acceptance of ambiguity and flow, mm. acceptance that we can't understand everything, so why are we trying to do that to get somewhere? Let's just do something and accept that we can't control all the variables, and I just wanted to say thank you for saying that. Thank you. And I think, you know, it's interesting that uh, a part of that is part of surgical training. I mean, in surgical training, obviously, you try to control everything and you certainly work towards achieving perfection. Uh, but in the end, what you learn over time is that you can't control all the variables. There's always going to be something that you didn't expect that pops up and you have to trust yourself to deal with it. And so when you do that in serious situations and over and over, I think you just begin to trust yourself that, you know, most of the time things work out. So on that note, and, and I'm glad you brought this all up, Scott, because when you talk about ambiguity, again, I'm being highly respectful to the uh, healthcare industry. I'm obviously uh, involved in it. I'm a fan of it. Um, and transformation um, has, it, it's, <laughs> if it's reached its moment, it's now. Uh, but where I'm going with ambiguity, we've talked about patient-centered approaches. Uh, now I think the next buzzword is people-centered. Where is this all going? And what has COVID taught us about what patient-centricity really means, uh, Shadden? Yeah, I think where this is all going is really an acknowledgement that when you treat patients, you don't just treat, for example, their diabetes. You treat their diabetes, their other comorbidities. Um, where they live, how hard it is for them to get to the doctor's office, uh, you know, what technology um, capabilities they have in their home or not, their diet. It's really that whole person picture. And so I, I really think that that is something that we all have to consider going forward. When I think about, you know, my previous life um, practicing as a neurosurgeon, one of the things um, that I, I didn't always have time to get to were the other aspects beyond surgery. I could treat the patient, I could do the surgery, I could look at the results, but what happens after that? What happens when they go home? What sort of home do they go to? What kind of help yeah. do they have? How does everything going on in their life, as we talked about social determinants, behavioral, et cetera, how does that play into their outcomes? And that's something that we're doing now in Care More and Aspire, and that's something that I felt was missing from, from my practice previously. So uh, when we think about where do we go uh, in terms of personalization in all of this, it's, it's understanding that there is an individual. Yes, there's a protocol for treating diabetes, but in the end, it's going to be a little different for person A versus person B because people are individuals. And what COVID has taught us is that even when the healthcare system is stressed the max, you have people who are treating individuals. They're not just following protocols, they're treating mm. individuals. And that goes from how people are received, how they're treated, how they're discharged, and the decisions that everyone's making. You know, you talk about uh, they're not just following protocols. And 
Um, and Scott, just so you're aware, there's a lot of protocols that, uh, let's just say they're, the, the standards aren't so tight anymore because uh, quite candidly, to, to Shadden's point, uh, we're having uh, to bend rather than being forced to break just to take care of the individual. But again, we've been talking about, about patient-centeredness for a while now, especially in this move from volume to value. What's the next generation of that thinking? Do you think that caregivers and physicians are going to have to rethink about what it means, going back to what you've said a few times now, what it means to treat the whole person? I think people get this theoretically, but what's going to have to change uh, from an operational standpoint to truly get there, Shadden? And again, I'm only stressing the point because I believe that our listeners really want to know because this isn't so easy. Yeah, I think there's a couple things that need to happen. Um, one is really switching, and there are many institutions who've switched already, to a multidisciplinary focus in care, which is mm -hmm. it's not just the doctor treating the patient or the doctor and the nurse practitioner or the doctor and the nurse. It's everyone treating the patient together, the doctor, the case manager, the community health worker, the dietitian, the pharmacist. Everyone is working together to treat the patient. And this is more than simply saying everyone has responsibility, but it's about how do you meet? How do you collaborate? How do you discuss the patients? How do you exchange data about the patients? And to me, that's something that's really the next step. And again, many institutions have taken that step. And the other thing is thinking about care beyond the hospital and beyond the clinic. Again, I'm a big believer in mobile care and virtual care and using those tools to augment in some places, even um, act in lieu of the traditional clinic visit. Oh boy, this is fantastic, Shadden. Yeah. Quick question. Um, again, everything was disrupted when COVID really struck, but did this accelerate digital transformation with, in some respect, but it, did it also set it back in another respect? I think it accelerated. I mean, I'd love to hear some thoughts about how it might have set things back, because in my mind, I really see this as an acceleration. Um, again, this digital was something where we all thought there'd be a much higher percentage of adoption, and then there wasn't. But then with COVID, you know, we were forced to essentially right. provide care at a significant percentage virtually. And we realized that we, as a care delivery arm, could do that. Our providers could do it. Our patients could receive it. And it just yeah. forced us into change. It was just one of those acceleration points. So yeah. help us understand how this moment has really created an opportunity for healthcare leadership to evolve its mindset to best serve the business of health? No, I think that's, you know, if there's anything quote unquote good to come out of a global pandemic, it is the, the change that's been forced. Uh, we simply at certain points could not physically be with our patients because of COVID spiking, because of the ramp up for PPE, all of these things. And so it made us think about how can we still help our patients? How can we help them with their chronic conditions, with their high-risk conditions, with their preventative care, with their social determinants of health? How can we do that if we're not physically in front of the patient? And one thing I will say about healthcare is, as we talked about at the very beginning of the phone call, healthcare is a great profession because it taps on everything that you have inside of you. It taps on your creativity, your ability to problem solve, your ability to persevere. And that's what COVID-19 did. It tapped on all of that so that we could think about how to really serve patients differently. 
it, here's another thought. Um, I don't think that healthcare is a vertical anymore. It's a horizontal. How do you respond to that? I agree. I agree 100%. Um, you know, when we're doing healthcare at Caremore and Aspire, our, our providers are first and foremost with our patients. But our patients and our providers wouldn't be effective in terms of results without everything that supports, and that's operations, it's finance, it's, you know, HR, it's IT, it's data sciences, it's all the various groups that you may not think about as being part of healthcare, but are a very important part of healthcare and really enable the results that we see. And if you even go further, in, in, when you look at the ecosystem of healthcare delivery, now we're talking about large employer partnerships. We're talking about how do we even find the right talent for the next generation of healthcare? I mean, things such as higher education, corporate America, and healthcare, there's more interconnectedness and interdependence than ever before. Any thoughts on that? I agree because, you know, healthcare, we have a term for it, but in the end, it's really about our lives. Like, how are we living our lives? Uh, do you have a high quality life? Do you have a life that's pain free? Do you have a life where you're able to manage what's happening physiologically and also psychologically to you? All of this permeates how we live our lives, and we've turned part of it healthcare. So, Shadden, I know that this may seem a little bit, uh, I'm not trying to be disrespectful in any way, but healthcare has kind of had this uh, reputation of being, you know, slow, me meaning, Maybe it's uh, operated more like a cottage industry rather than a big business. Uh, but as it's become a, a horizontal, the, the urgency for speed and focus and innovation in this journey of transformation, to your point, that's been accelerated by COVID-19, I've got to believe that the business models of healthcare are, are going to continue to evolve more rapidly than ever before. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. And I would say, you know, I, I, I appreciate the comment. I'm not sure that I ever really thought of healthcare as being slow. You know, when I think about um, just the, the speed that we had to act uh, when patients came into the hospital and, you know, time to brain, time to heart, all these sorts of things. I, I tend to think of healthcare as being speedy, but I'm, I'm also trying to consider what you've mentioned about the overall industry. But regardless, what I will say is that one of the things I like most about healthcare, one of the things that keeps me in this profession is the constant change. There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that we have to solve. And to do that, we change every day. And as I talk to my own organization, which is undergoing a lot of change right now, but very good change, one of the things I always say is that change is life. I mean, if we're not changing, then someone else is changing faster and moving ahead of us. And there's a lot of innovation that's happening when it comes to care delivery, when it comes to personalized medicine, when it comes to devices, when it comes to the technologies that we can use on a daily basis in our lives. And, and that's what I really like about healthcare is that change is the only way we move forward. Well, talk about change. I mean, when you're met with uh, COVID-19 and social injustice, I mean, two unprecedented moments, both highly personal, uh, disruptive events that uh, we need to take the time to acknowledge, analyze, and solve. How have these, how, how these crises, in your mind, uh, <clears throat> taught us some lessons about how we can accelerate healthcare's transformation. I think they've really taught us the power of the person, that an individual person can make change. And certainly this is a phrase we hear throughout life. You can, you can make a change. You can be in charge of a change. 
but this has showed that individual people across different walks of life can band together and make things change. When I look at the protests all across our country and the changes that have been affected, there's a lot more change that needs to happen, but we've started and we've gotten farther than we have been previously. Again, a long way to go, but this is due to individual people making choices, coming together and believing that we can enact a change. And that's the same thing with COVID-19. Again, when we think about just hospitals across the country and the stress and the strain we've put on the system, and these are healthcare workers that have decided, I'm coming to work, I'm going to tackle this, I'm going to make a change. And to me, that's, that's beautiful because that shows what we can do as people. You know, Shadna, it's interesting, and, and come on, let's have a little humor here. Uh, there's no wonder you can't see things being slow because you're moving so fast. <laughs> and you have this innate ability to just be on a trajectory of change and evolution and thinking that aren't just thoughts, but things that you and your team could actually act upon. How about for a healthcare executive that, you know, maybe is stuck in standardization, can't quite see the value of personalization beyond the obvious. How do we re-energize, refocus healthcare leaders uh, to be not just part of the change, but help industries outside of healthcare recognize that if we can master and find ways to operationalize personalization, now we become a horizontal that has tremendous impact and influence across all industries that depend on healthcare. So in other words, how do we start mobilizing leaders that maybe don't see the world as clearly as you do? I think, you know, there's really two or three ways. And the first is that you need to make an environment where it's safe for people to make a mistake. And people are not going to make changes unless they know that they can make a mistake, survive, and keep going. And so we have to create an environment where people can pilot things and try things. And maybe you're only 80% right, but you take a movement forward. And so first, I think it's the environment of innovation. And then the second thing I will say is that we need to think about cross-pollination between industries, which goes to what you're saying about it really being a horizontal industry. I love when people from consumer industries and retail come into healthcare because there's a lot we can learn and vice versa from other industries when it comes to healthcare. And one of the most exciting things has been um, just looking at healthcare startups and health tech startups and all the ideas that people have and they're just trying them out and they're doing them. And that, that helps change the industry overall. And then finally, you know, the last thing I would say it's really also about diversity. Like you can't have the same types of people leading and the same types of people really uh, achieving senior positions in the industry. It's about having that diversity when it comes to race and sex and background to truly put the ideas in the industry and give people the chance to execute them. So Scott, I, I could almost imagine what you're thinking about now, but uh, two out of the three things, and you could say all all three things that Chad uh, discussed, uh, when you think about cross-pollination, it's about what? Inclusion and diversity. W what's the trend here, Scott? What are you picking up? Um, actually, quite a bit. And I think what will help me to get some traction and maybe help a lot of our listeners and viewers as well who might not be as steeped into healthcare language and, and even corporate language as well, is I'm gonna ask for some advice, <laughs> right? 
And so it's coming from your, your background, both, I mean, we're talking military, medicine, and business, right, at this point. And so there's a lot of perspective there. You, it seemed to me that one of the, 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 the big lessons I'm getting today is how much you're a champion for virtual care and how much virtual care in and of itself can be a, a mechanism towards more inclusion in terms of healthcare deliverables, let alone those of us that might be in healthcare to find out how we can be more of a bigger part of the solution or moving forward. But that said, one thing that, that sometimes frustrates me inside my head is when these great ideas get packaged into ways that are not as inclusive for the whole human race. Um, and by that, I mean, when we start talking a little bit too much about, for example, patients, um, to me, that means something, but it probably doesn't mean what it means to you. Or healthcare provider, it means something to me, but not what it means to you and maybe even Glenn, right? So I would like to take all of those terms out. And instead of talking about patients, I want to just talk about people, right? They're just humans, right? Humans themselves. And I want to go back to virtual care because you, I can see why you're a champion for virtual care because you're making it work in ways that, that the rest of us need to learn from. And so rather than thinking about taking this to the boardroom or to higher ed where I work, how do I take this to my family? Because we need to do virtual care in this era to take care of our family and friends who are disconnected from. And depending on the pandemic's trajectory, we might find ourselves even further physically isolated. So what lessons can you give us about virtual care that aren't steeped in the boardroom, but that can actually come from the boardroom and business to help us be better virtual caregivers and receivers with our families and friends? Yeah, to me, virtual care is about confidence and answers. So a lot of times when we think about something, uh, we just pick up our phone. Maybe it's to Google the answer, maybe it's to call someone, to text someone, maybe it's to do something with one of our apps, but we look at our phones as a source of answers. And when we have answers, we have more confidence. So for example, if your mother is in a different state, and your mother, you know, you're talking to your mother and you sense things aren't right and you talk to her and you ask her what's going on. You know, what you can do is through the power of virtual care, through the power of your phone, through the power of telemedicine, through the power of remote monitoring, is you can connect your mother in a way that your mother gets answers and you get answers. For example, if, you know, your mother is a diabetic, and you're worried about how she's handling her blood sugars because it's COVID-19 and she's you know, afraid to go to the doctor because everyone's been told to stay inside and wear a mask. So what you can do through virtual care is you can have a consultation with a specialist over your phone. You can include your mother. You can maybe even get some data about your mother's condition. It's a bit more concrete than what you're able to get just through you know, a child-parent conversation. And then you can get the help and the answers you need. So to me, virtual care is about the way we use technology in every part of our life. You know, people have smartphones in all walks of life and people use their phones to get answers. And to do that for health is the next step. And could I just add one tack on? Please. Can you maybe add just another layer? Cause that's brilliant. Um, and I'm curious, how about for the receiver of care? How do, how do we all become better receivers of virtual care? How do we better prepare and align ourselves to be better receivers for care? Because I tell you, um, when we divide ourselves into caregivers and care receivers, we've missed the whole point, right? So 
I, uh, I, I want to understand how do I be a better care receiver because I can't, I can't give it unless I get it too. Yeah, I think there's a couple ways. I mean, the first way is going back to something I mentioned earlier, which is one of the barriers to virtual care, and that is just trying it. Just try it. You will get a high-quality doctor through your phone. It will be easy to do. It will be something that helps you with your health. But I can say all of that, but it doesn't make any difference. We need people to try it and really experience because we're humans. We're an experiential kind of being. And so to experience it and have a positive experience, hey, it was easy. Not the answers I need. I feel better. You know, that is the big hurdle. And then the second thing after that, which is, you know, secondary, but as part of being, I guess, a good citizen inside the virtual care world, is the idea of really exchanging data. And so obviously data has to be fair, data exchange has to be transparent, and it has to be with consent. But the more data that you're able to provide to your virtual care doctor, whether it's through something that you have in your house or a wearable or just simply typing something in or trying to reflect upon the answers, taking that responsibility and, and the onus upon yourself to provide data only enhances your virtual care experience and effects. Thank you very much. <laughs> so Shatton, as we wrap up here, uh, what are you walking away from our, our discussion today? And uh, what are some, maybe some final comments that you'd like to share with our audience? I mean, we've talked about a lot, uh, whether it's from the beginnings of your career to how you were shaped into this very uh, dynamic uh, healthcare executive that is a change agent and, and one that desires the, the industry to transform to just how the industry's been impacted and ha has been forced to evolve in many ways as a result of COVID-19. What are some things that you can leave uh, with, our, with our audience about not just uh, the future of healthcare, but why healthcare and the healthcare industry really plays an incredibly important role to the evolution of our society? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when you really want to make an impact upon the human race, to me, the most meaningful area to do it is in healthcare. Because as we talked about earlier, healthcare is this word, and as you've mentioned, it's really more of a horizontal than an actual industry, which I love that concept. It's, it's our lives. So when we talk about your healthcare and helping you with your health and how are you feeling and health, 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 what we're talking about is your life. Are you able to do the things that you enjoy? Are you able to interact with the people that you care about? Are you able to have an effect in your life in the way that's meaningful to you? And a lot of what that comes down to is health. And so when you're in the healthcare industry, you are helping people with the core of their being. And to me, there's just no better mission in life. And moreover, when we think about where there's change and innovation and an ability to cross-pollinate and have impact and all the things we talked about, me, that's healthcare, because healthcare is, is so many of these things. Sure, on one hand, it's operational and it's processes and it's technical and it's scientific, but on the other hand, it's creative. And it's about really meeting the challenges in the world today. When we think about COVID-19, and again, the hospitals getting overwhelmed, the hospitals didn't buckle. Healthcare as an industry, healthcare as workers, healthcare as providers, as people, we stood up and we found solutions and we got through it and we're going to get through it. So if I were to leave people with anything today, it is just to believe in the power of the individual, believe in everyone's individual ability to make change, 
because that leads to larger systemic change in many of the ways that we talked about today. Well, you have certainly helped us all understand the power of individual contribution to make our mission stronger and to help all of us, uh, whether you're in healthcare or not, evolve as individuals. Scott, did you have any final parting words before we break? Yeah, two of them. Thank and you. <laughs> this has been great. I really appreciated learning from you today. Thank you so much for what you shared. Likewise. Well, Shadden, uh, again, we're, we're so, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying thank you, Scott, and thank you, Glenn. I learned a lot from both of you as well. Well, you know, that's a beautiful thing about the age of personalization. And I always say that when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Uh, Shadden, I am, uh, been an honor to have you on today. And uh, we really thank you for your time uh, and keep making things happen. The industry is, uh, is going to see a force in you that I think in the next 12 months, we'll all be able to tell a story about. So thank you very much for your time. Likewise. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.